Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of someone calling into Sports Talk Radio. Yeah, this is Flo. Long-time caller, first time on air. I just wanted to say that I think it is absolute hogwash not to go out there and try Progressive's Name Your Price tool. You can see all your coverage options, and options are how you get rings. Championship rings. And parades of rings. Finding options to fit your budget with the Name Your Price tool. Only at Progressive.com. You know, not for nothing, but my favorite rings have candy on them. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Real Sports Guys, where real guys talk real sports. This is your guy, D. Wills, uh, in the building. We normally have my, my guy, Marcus, the game changer. But, you know, the thing about being uh, the kind of uh, folks we are and the families and everything else, you know, this is that, you know, that college onboarding season. And so he's uh, moving his daughter into the residence hall. And, you know, uh, we have these kind of responsibilities. We value education. So this is a, a really important time for for him and the family as, as they, they have uh, their daughter going on to college. So uh, we definitely want to have him share that experience when he's back with us on the next podcast. But as, as usual, I got, I got my other guy, even though we don't have three in the booth, you know, sometimes we, we, we can go two on two, two on three. We can do that. We got the kind of skills like that. And I got my guy, Phil, PhD in the building. How you doing guy? I'm doing good, man. But let, let me be clear when I'm going two on three, that means I'm too out of shape, and I just can't run up and down, so I'll just stay back on defense. <laughs> That's all we're doing. We'll spread the court because one thing, you and I got some range, so we can space the floor. So you step off, you know, we, we, we will pull up and fall out of bounds on you and, and make call glass on you. <laughs> yeah. We'll be looking for oxygen, but we will call glass right. on you. Funny story, man. I – uh Oh, so I remember my last year in college, I was playing uh, basketball three or four days a week. I was playing with Marcus and the guys on the basketball team and their open gym off the, you know, off season and stuff. And so, you know, I was in pretty good shape, man. But then that first job after undergrad, you know, that first year, I'm not working out. You got money. You can eat whenever you want to. And the next time I played basketball was probably like a year after that. Man, I nearly fell. I nearly killed myself because I was <laughs> I was going at it, you know, like it was a year before. But my body was telling me you need to slow down. <laughs> Talk about oxygen. I <laughs> I've never felt my heart beat that fast ever. <laughs> and, uh, that's if you start getting that. I mean, I, I was I was telling folks until. For a long time, I would play three and four times a week, and I remember I woke up and, and thought about it, and I hadn't played in like two
two weeks, I had never gone any time in my life not playing basketball at least three or four times. And uh, I just knew I wasn't going to make it back. <laughs> never came back. It's like it wasn't going to happen. But I was trying to make intramural. I was a staff member trying to make intramural all-star teams and, and everything else. It was the great experience about being at the place we call Beloit College. And, you know, we're going to have that theme tonight. We gonna, One of the things that we like to do, we, we're a national show. Uh, we usually hit some national and sometimes international issues. But there are times when we want to, you know, kind of narrow in and still kind of have that national focus. But there are times we, we always want to reconnect, especially for the three of us uh, with our alma mater. And so uh, we got a special show tonight. Uh, we got the authors of Deprived, the Lost 1982 NFL Season. Uh, Jimmy Grant and Sean Miskivens, the authors, will be with us tonight. Uh, they are two former Division Three athletes, uh, but now turned authors and um, you know, um, for many of us, you know, we experienced that 1982 uh, in, in many different ways, uh, but uh, they have a fabulous book. Um, you can uh, look, get a copy of it or, or learn more about it if you go to realsportsguys.com. Um, check out, uh, we have an Amazon carousel, and you'll see the book there. Click on it. Um, it'll take you right to it, learn more about it, but it's a, it's a must-read. Uh, we'll have a chance for Jimmy to talk about um, his quarterback rating system, which is pretty interesting. Um, and his reasons why he uh, developed his own system, given um, uh, the uh, quarterback rating system we currently have and, and the way in which uh, folks uh, look at it. ESPN has uh, really been pushing that a, a lot. Um, and so we got a great show. Uh, Phil and I will be hitting it hard, talking about a little bit of NFL. Um, we, we'll be hitting on uh, some some of the, the, the college uh, football issues. Uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff. Some of you, if you listen to our last podcast, uh, we made our predictions, so we might hit back a little bit with that and kind of get a sense of where we are now uh, with that. Um, but uh, before we get into the interview, um, I got some things on my big board. Um, and I got this big board, and I'll probably, um, you know, it's not like Mel's big board. I'll probably uh, um, uh, do something on Twitter, take a picture of it. But I got a couple of things I put on my big board. The one thing is RG3 is on my big board, and I've been trying to understand. I was just talking to Phil about this before we came on, we went on the air. Um, I'm trying to understand the RG3 situation, and, and there are times when uh criticize Daniel Snyder. I mean, he's usually the, the, the focus of most of the criticism when things don't go well in Washington. But on this one, I've got to give the owner a pass. Uh, on this one, i got to give him a pass. Um, I blame this situation on all the football operations people from the Shanahan regime and now the Gruden regime. Uh, the Shanahan's in terms of how they handled him post-season one um, and and really worked with him on that. Yes, there's some things that uh, he probably needs to do from a maturity standpoint, but I think there's ways in which um, they handled him in ways in which other elite quarterbacks with a status, they would not have handled him that way. Um, and I think Gruden made what I call the mistake that a lot of, really, I, what I would say, first-time head coaches make. They, they spend so much time trying to put in their program that they're not really scanning for how their talent sometimes fits into it. So I think Gruden came in trying to really establish some authority with him in a way that created a chasm in a way I didn't think he had to. And it was it was from the first time I saw it, I felt like this is not going to head anywhere. Um, not because uh, RG3 couldn't, but Gruden wasn't doing the kind of things that are going to help him be successful because he was too busy trying to make a point. 
you know, if he said something, he would put him back in his place. And just those kind of dynamics that I was just clear up front was not going to work. And so um, now what do we do? You know, they're probably going to cut him and then uh, he's going to part his ways. And then we will go with Kirk Cousins. And the backup quarterback is always the person that everybody's clamoring for. You know, everybody talk about the backup quarterback and what they're going to do. And now we got another one like Kirk Cousins, who he wasn't impressive at all, but somehow because he kind of says the right things, uh, you know, we're going to figure out that we can give him a chance because, you know, he practices the way we want to. I feel like, you know, uh, you know, I want to I want to come out with some 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 of my own things. Sometimes I feel like is AI right, you know, because folks want to just come out with their own stuff and 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 try to talk about the way in which um, you know, he's practicing and his approach and and everything that 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 comes along with that. And sometimes I just listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. We talking about practice. I hear people say, "Well, he practices. He does all these different things," and some of that is okay, but it's not kinds of stuff that leads you to championships. And RG three has has a special arm, had special skills, but this whole concept of development, developmental approach to quarterbacking, um, you know, it's going to be great to even talk to Jimmy and Sean a little bit about this. That you know, even the when you talk about the quarterbacks in 1982 or those eras, you know, some of the things when you read their book, you know, you also get a sense of how coaches and organizations try to develop quarterbacks. Even quarterbacks you didn't think were going to be great, they develop quarterbacks or veteran quarterbacks that like a person like uh, Ken Anderson, um, who late in his career or, or Plunkett, who were able to revive, revitalize their career could do it because organizations understood that there's this developmental process that's part of it. And I think that's lost today. And I think we've lost a lot of talent because coaches and organizations don't have that approach. And, and so I got RG3 on my big board. The other person I have on my big board, just on the opposite side of it, is Serena Williams. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she won that first match. If you if you left and gone to the store and had to get you something to eat, you know, usually test matches will last an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours. You come back, it's over. I mean, it was like she was practicing by herself. I mean, Serena is on a mission. I don't know if it was, you know, straight out of Compton came out, she got hyped and felt like she was rejuvenated. I don't know what it is, but she came out strong, came through the building, just crushing it and, and is uh, going to try to run – that cycle again, and and you got to start talking about her in terms of being uh, the greatest tennis player of all time, and one of the greatest athletes. I mean, I think the way in which she's changed the game in a lot of different ways, and uh, there's been a lot of discussions of, about uh, on the air around uh, the fact that, given her greatness, you know, has she um, uh, benefit in terms of the financial benefits from sponsorships in the way she should have. And I, I think that's a, a conversation we need to think about. I mean, uh, when you think about how far the Williams had, the sisters had to come, when you come in from the environment they had to come from to get to where they are now in the determination, um, you know, uh, there's a story there. And I think marketing and everything else is about a storyline. And uh, to to not be able to um, find ways for her to, to, to benefit, um, uh, 
you know, those are things that uh, uh, would be, you know, are, are very important uh, in terms of how we uh, uh, look at her. But she has just been um, incredible. Um, and, um, you know, I'm I'm just excited to see her, um, you know, do what she's doing now. In some ways, I felt like, you know, I wish we would have been able to appreciate her her more um, uh, because I think that, um, you know, she has done something incredible. And I think as we reflect on her career and her greatness, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to think we, we had somebody who um, uh, was, uh, is, um, you know, one of the greatest athletes, you know, male, female we've seen. I mean, she does things on the court that I think even, you know, uh, her, her, her male counterparts are saying, wow, you know, she is, she is, she is doing her, her thing. And then, the third person on my board, just because they can't stop talking about him, is my guy, Tom Brady. You know, I, I grew up in, in Michigan, Ann Arbor, watched Brady, loved him. But he can't just get away from this stuff. As much as he probably wants to get away from it, he got to fight it. He's still in the middle of this. We, we, we're going to over some, uh, over some deflated balls. We in court systems. You know, uh, Roger Goodell. You know, the habitual line stepper is pushing this thing to the limit. I mean, from an NFL standpoint, there, there's, you know, sometimes people say all publicity is good publicity, but this is is run its course. It's taken away, I think, from the game in a way that uh, it needs to. It's, it's This is kind of run its course to people being tired about it. It's not like – it's not uh, – uh, you know, Bounty Gate that had this kind of intrigue that kind of held a little bit. This thing lost its luster a long time ago, and, and there should be some owners who just want to uh, let this thing go. And I'm hoping that, you know, we, I know we're seeking some re res uh, 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 resolution here pretty soon, but it, this is, I want to take this off my big board, but I can't because everywhere I turn, you got drawings of him, <laughs> you know, first he's looking old, then they, they kind of corrected that, and now I got him looking somewhere near what he's trying to do. You know, everything, now they're talking about his drawings, the drawings of him in the court. I mean, they're trying to milk this thing for everything they can get. And I think there, this is a time where it's kind of having a negative hit uh, on the NFL and the fact that, you know, you can't spend all your time in the courts and not have people start to wonder what's going on. So, you know, uh, Roger Goodell's got to win this one because if he doesn't, whew, there are going to be some problems. You know, he can't, the owner's going to have to do something. Um, and um, uh, at some point, um, the owners have to think this contentious relationship with the players is not going to be good for long running. So they got to find a way either to smooth this out. You know, when something like this ends up in the court, that means that there's something deeper happening between the NFLPA, the players, and the NFL. And, and, and Roger Goodell was one of those main things. And now – you got some some owners who are split on the way he's handling business. So, you know, when you try to mess with the, you know, the number one guy, the number one stunner, Tom Brady, you know, that everybody loves, that has reached beyond the game, that opens up something new. So, you know, I'm excited uh, and ready to go. And, uh, you know, we have some great, great uh, uh, stuff to talk about tonight. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, having my guys, uh, who are here to meet me tonight, Jimmy and uh, Sean, talk about their book because I think it's going to be um, a, a fun time. And uh, 
you know, we're going to be uh, uh, hitting some really good stuff here, uh, talking about the 1982 strike, because I think a lot of stuff that we're seeing today um, has uh, a lot of connection to, uh, you know, what happened back then and this relationship that continues to happen um, uh, with uh, the Players Association, the players in the league. And, um, you know, uh, this goes back a long time. And before some of you folks who are listening to us, um, uh you know, even fell in love with the game. These issues have impacted us in ways that uh, that kind of control how things are going right now. So we're going to come back in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to talk to our authors, and uh, we're going to uh, have some fun tonight. And thank you again for being with us, Real Sports Guys. Go to realsportsguys.com. Uh, you can definitely check out this book, The Pride, The Lost 1982 Season, um, uh, NFL Season, um, to check it out yourself. But uh, when I come back, we'll have our authors Jimmy Grant and Sean Miskivens uh, on the air with us. You're listening to the Real Sports Guys, realsportsguys.com, brought to you by Resistance Digital Solutions. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care. You fail. I excel. They all fail. Gonna cut down double L. You're listening to the Real Sports Guys, realsportsguys.com, brought to you by Resistance Digital Solutions. Welcome back to the Real Sports Guys, where real guys talk real sports. The real sports guys, realsportsguys.com, brought to you by Resistance there Digital Solutions. Yes, there we go. I'm mixing like the cut creator right now. We're back <laughs> on. We're ready. You know, I'm doing the voiceovers. I'm cutting up tonight. I will get my turntables going. I got my boy Phil T back in the building, but I'm excited right now because, um, uh, these are two guys that uh, that I know, and um, uh, it was interesting when I was reading their book. I, um, you know, because I've heard them talk and tell stories, I I could almost uh, hear them talking to me. 
which was great, and uh, they're they're great storytellers. Um, but it also made me kind of reflect uh, back on my own um, childhood, and you know, and how I felt about that time. And I I love the way they uh, approached their book in terms of integrating their own kind of upbringing and family culture into um, even uh, thinking about the what ifs. And so um, it's something that I definitely encourage you to to check out. Uh, you can. Um, uh, uh, get their book. If you go to realsportsguys.com, we have an Amazon carousel right there at the top of the page. Click to it. The material um, helps us to really kind of understand um, some of what we see in the NFL today and where some of the origin of some of the contention, as I was just talking about with Brady, where some of that stuff comes from. Um, and um, it also uh, reflects and lets you know a little bit about, you know, the history and some lost stories that people should uh, really uh, know about. And so, uh, it's great uh, uh, to have uh, uh, on the air with us uh, uh, Jimmy Grant and Sean Miskivens, uh the authors of Deprived, the Lost 1982 NFL Season. Uh, hey, gentlemen, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks, well, thanks for, having for having us. Yeah, this, yeah, I've been looking forward to this, and uh, I had a chance to to read the book. And, you know, part of it is, you know, as someone who's worked on writing projects uh, with others, um you know, I guess, and Jimmy, I'll I'll I'll, I'll direct this to you first. Um, first of all, you know, how did the uh, how did this idea come about? You know, where did it come from? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and why you why you decided to write this book? You know, it's it's funny. We as long as far back as being younger in college, we used to always joke about writing a book together about football because you know we're both. I mean, I'm a high school history teacher. I'm a football coach. You know, Sean's a high school history teacher, and we just like history, and, and I love NFL history. And so we started kicking around ideas, and, like, I love the 82. Like, the games I remember, I remember pretty well my first Super Bowl was 14 because we lived in, near Pittsburgh at the time. And that was the Steelers' last of their first run. But I really started to get into football in, like, the 80 season. And so, 82, you know, you're starting to get really into it. And then the strike hits, and, and you, you realize that as a kid, there's, well, there's a lot of business involved in all this. It's not just a game. And so that season always fascinated me. And, and I just thought about, like, you know, how would the season have played out differently if there hadn't been a strike? And, and so I think that was sort of the inspiration for it. And I just – I love that era of football. I, I want to say from, like, you know, 70 to – you know, 85, 86, that, that's probably my favorite era. And so it just stuck out as something I thought was interesting and kind of a, a, maybe a forgotten story. I, I agree. I, can... I mean, I think that's, a period, that's a period that I came um, of age in. So I, I do resonate that. Sean, are you going to add something to that? Yeah, if I could just add something, you know, part of, you know, when you're a history major, it's not like math or science where there's a lot of questions where there is, you know, a direct, correct answer and that's it. That's the only choice. So I think part of our training in college was to think outside the box and look at alternatives to different sorts of questions. So, you know, and Jimmy hit it on the head. That is our, our favorite era of the NFL. You know, a lot of those guys, you know, some guys we just miss, like I miss Staubach. I never saw him play, but, you know, he was a name that was thrown out. And then there's all these guys that were great in the early 80s. And I think when we said we wanted to do this, it was like, well, let's feed our passion. Let's feed, you know, 
something from the 70 to 85 time period of NFL. And I've always been a big bookstore browser and, you know, looking at history books and sports books. And, you know, so part of me was like, well, what's something that like can be really analyzed? What's something that can be like retold? And, you know, a lot of people listening right now that might have an interest in the NFL, I'm sure they remember the 87 strike. Well, only three games played with the scab players and one game was missed. So the bulk of that season was played. 12 of the 16 games were played. In 82, you barely had half the season played. You had nine. And then they switched the playoff format. So it's just like it was so built for like a, boy, we lost a lot of stuff here. What exactly would have happened if they'd played the whole 16-game season and the regular playoff format? So that what-if history thing in us, it kind of took hold. And, I mean, you both talked about it, and you both, you know, co- you both play college football, and um, but you also have this kind of, you know, this growth that you had in terms of your academic passion for history. You know, how did that, you know, as as athletes um, and uh, this kind of pursuit of your other passion, how did that also inform this process? May I, Jimmy, I'll well, let you go with that one. Or, or uh, Sean, take it. Go ahead, Sean. Um, you know, I remember Jimmy was one of the first people once we got out of college to talk about being a lifelong learner. And I wasn't into education back then in terms of I you know, got my history, I had my history degree, but I didn't have my educational teaching certificate yet. So I was kind of like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, it means that you're constantly cultivating your academics, you're learning new things, you're taking classes, maybe you're getting advanced degrees. And so, you know, as I first jumped into the museum field being a curator before I became a history teacher, like there was a lot of opportunities I had all of a sudden where I I was writing things and I was publishing things. And, you know, I remember, you know, we're in the early days of school right now, so we're going over like the regiments in my class and I'm giving out my syllabus and I'm telling them, okay, you're going to write research papers this year. And I was like, I, I used to be excited when somebody would say, you get to write a research paper and you get to pick the topic so long as it comes under the heading of this class. So kind of when we were coming up with the idea for the book, it was like we want something from, you know, what we would call vintage NFL of our childhood. And then, you know, we get a chance to delve into books and libraries and go to the index and look what we're looking for. And, okay, I got to go to this website. I got to get this newspaper. I've always liked doing research and then historical analysis. So whether it's actual like military history, like World War II or it's baseball or football history, you know, I got a whole bookshelf just of, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s NFL Major League Baseball books. I just... I love I love history and I love sports history. So um, yeah, it was a fun it was a fun task. Just like writing something to be published about you know the Air Force in like a local magazine or for a local periodical that I've done. It was that sort of fun. I love research. Yeah, and, mm. you know, and I had I had written early in my coaching career. I had an article published in a coaching periodical, and when I wrote it, I'm like, I doubt they'll print this. And then they did, and I had I had three or four other ones published, and I was like, wow. I mean, you know, I always like to write. I always like, you know, as Sean said, that research kind of process. And I'm like, you know, if we can, if I can have something published in that small format, you know, let's see if we can do it in a bigger format and see what it, see how it turns out. It was sort of like a just a fun project, you know, to work on. And so, you know, you're you just kind of figured, you know, let's give this thing a shot and see if we can do it. 
Jimmy, I'm, I'm going to continue with you in, 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 in Sean's and jump in. You know, when you write stuff like this, you're doing research, you're getting a lot of stuff. You know, in, in the co-writing process, you know, you kind of have to decide some things. So how do you decide what was going to go in the book and then what ended up on the cutting floor that was interesting that, you know, if you had to write it again or write something else that you would include? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's funny because we did have to do a lot of collaboration. And I think one of the things that that you had to watch, I guess, is that, you know, there was, I think we picked like five games that were compelling games that didn't get played. Well, that's such a narrow number. There was probably 20 really, I mean, and in the course of an NFL season, there's, there's a couple different compelling games every week. But you start looking at that and you're like, for the ordinary person that picks this up, that's not like a football, like, stat, like, junkie, you know, they're going to be, you know, through that third game and be like, all right, this is boring. I get it. Games were missed, you know. So we had to sit there and kind of narrow that down because you just get to the point where it would become like a, you know, a reader's digest of pretend football games didn't happen. So that was something that while I was interested in it, I'm like, you know, I don't know that the average reader will want to read more than a few of these. So for me, that would have been something that, that I left on, I would say, you know, so to speak, left on the cutting room floor. Um, so that was something for me. Sean? There's a couple things that, um, you know, as we got into the 82 strike, of course, you know, we remember the 87 strike. There was a near strike in 1970, and there was a short strike in 1974. And to be honest, I didn't know much about the 74 strike. We go into that a little bit in the book. I knew nothing. I didn't know there had almost been a strike in 1970. And it's funny, and, the, and that got left on the cutting room floor because basically some of the issues they were – upset with then got hammered out to a small extent and then in 74 you know things changed and they were coming to a head again and that kind of led into the 82 strike so that was covered more but so some of the stuff in the 1970 strike that almost happened was left on the cutting room floor I mean it was interesting because different people years later said things like I remember Mel Renfro saying like and uh, Cornell Green a couple of the Dallas D-backs from that era were like it was stupid when we talked about having a strike we had at the start of training camp you know the owners had plenty of time to you know come up with something and you know we should have struck right at the regular season I think one of them even said something like we should have struck the day of the first game like we should have told them we're not coming out of the locker room unless this happens or whatever you know basically like it would have given us more leverage but people weren't united and I think something that you will get if you read the book, and this basically probably goes back from like the late 80s all the way back, is NFL players were not paid that much money, and they needed that job. A lot of guys had jobs in the offseason all the way up to the mid to late 80s. So they weren't working because it was fun or they didn't get along with their wife. They needed that income. So if you have a job in the offseason to help support yourself, you're going to be missing your paycheck. You're going to be struggling at home. So, I mean, it was very abundantly clear that, like, you know, the NFL of today making hand over fist money was not the NFL of 30 or 35 years ago. And and y'all talk a little bit about that book because even though there's um, more money in the game, when you when you think about it from – you know, proportionally, some of those issues around lack of guarantee contracts for players, some of that stuff where 
um, compared to their peers, they're still struggling with, even though the game has gotten bigger. And we'll we'll get into to, to some of that. Jimmy, I want to, from the research, I don't know if you had a chance to interview people or, or um, I think Sean just touched on a little bit of this, but, you know, was there something that you learned that, that you didn't know prior to research or did you have a chance to talk to anyone that just hit you with a story or something that, that kind of blew you away? Well, I'll let Sean take this because he actually got to talk to someone. The guy that I was slated to talk to, he, it was going to be Bradshaw, and he stiffed a card show that we were going to go to and have a chance to talk to him. But Sean got to talk to Daryl Grant, who was mm. um, a really good player on the 82 Redskins. And so he, I'll let him talk about that a little bit, about what you know his analysis of that was. I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, when I met Daryl Grant, I had a chance to talk to him for a few moments casually. And, um, you know, for those, you know, like Phil, you know, I was, I was a Cowboys fan. We didn't have a pro team where I grew up in Oregon. So, you know, the Cowboys were on TV all the time. You know, they had some glamorous players. It was fun to watch people like Drew Pearson and Tony Dorsett. And, um, so I remember watching the 82 NFC championship and I remember basically Daryl Grant salted the game away when he caught a a batted Gary Hogaboom pass and took it into the end zone from about 12 yards out to push it from 24-17 Redskins to 31-17 at RFK. So he obviously was an integral part of that Redskin team that got to the Super Bowl that year. And, you know, in the research in the book, you know, prior to that NFC Championship game, Dallas had really had Washington's number for a pretty good period of time. Now there were some tight games. It wasn't like they were ripping them, but Dallas had a pretty good, you know, eight and one, seven and one, the last eight games against Washington. They had even won that year in RFK, you know, Washington won eight and one during the strike season. They lost at home to Dallas. So, um, when I interviewed Daryl Grant, I said, you know, you guys had lost to them at home. They had kind of beaten you a lot recently, you know, was psychologically, was that in the back of your mind, you know, and what sort of lift did you guys get when you knocked Danny White out of the game? Because 82 was the only year Danny White, you know, who, of course, did a pretty decent job replacing Staubach. It's tough replacing a legend. That's the only year he went to the Pro Bowl, and the Skins knocked him out of that game. And so I said, you know, how did you guys feel on the sideline? The game was tight. It was the second quarter. You knocked him out. How did you feel? And he's like, oh, it was a tremendous lift psychologically. Whenever you knock a starting quarterback out of the game, that's a big deal. And, of course, like you said, Dallas did have our number. It was, you know, a huge psychological thing. We got this guy coming in we don't really know much about. He's a younger guy. And, you know, it just gave us a tremendous boost. Now, I don't really think Washington was, quote-unquote, in trouble at that point of the game when they knocked Danny White out. But, you know, as somebody that played football, and Devon, I know you played as well, something like that, you knock out a starting quarterback in a big game like that, like, I mean, you you can remember the emotion and that sort of thing. Like, it mm -hmm. gives you a lift. And, you know, obviously the Skins were trying to get to the Super Bowl for the first time in about 10 years, so I can imagine the lift that it gave them. You know, one of the things in, in my in my uh, big board conversation before I brought you on, um, uh, you, you know, one of the things I talked about is RG three and at least this this this, um, uh, this lack of uh, of thinking about how important it is to develop players, particularly at the quarterback position. This patience that you need to have to get folks like you know everybody's not going to come in like Andrew Luck and be ready made. 
And what was great about reading the book um, was these stories. When you think about Plunkett and you think about Anderson and some of these older guys who had the second life, but, but also, you know, and I love as two historians how y'all framed it, you know, because a reader today would read that book and y'all are really clear to talk about this because, you know, when you mention people like Montana, people go to what they know about him now, but y'all really as historians try to keep it in the context of 82 and understanding. I mean, when people understand, I mean, Walsh, one of his greatest things was thinking about the development of his quarterback and, and where, and, and how y'all talked about players like Montana and, you know, how how were you able to keep yourself in the moment and kind of defend against that? And what's your opinion around um, how some of these players developed and, and how, you know, what happened in 82 either stifled or helped development? I mean, y'all really tried to capture some of that as part of your book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, maybe I'll, I'll go with Jimmy and then and Sean and you jump in. Well, I, th- I think that money changed everything. I, I really do, and not, not for the better. Now, if I was in the NFL, I would have said it changed it for the better. But I think it, it's really – and it, it's easy for us to sound old and say it's, it's ruined the fabric of the game. We just sound like old people when we say that. But in a lot of ways, it really has. I mean, the one thing that, that Walsh had that was an advantage when, when he took over the 49ers, they were abysmal for so long that – you know, he drafts Montana. The quote he used is, before he got hurt, before Namath got hurt, he had incredible feet. And and Walsh talked about Montana saying he had these nimble feet like Namath before he got hurt, and that's what attracted him, how good his feet were. Well, in today's day and age where, you know, these stadiums are huge, they need to be sold out, there's a bottom line, a coach now, they have a two- to three-year window. And if they don't turn it around, they're done. So a coach coming in that drafts RG3, he's not looking at a five-year plan. It's a two-year plan or a three-year plan. And, and, it's, and it's almost like gambling and saying, like, you know what, I'm gambling here. If he gets hurt, if he's not any good, I'm done. But if it takes me five years and I leave him on the bench, if, he, if, if you know, I'm going to say I'm going to develop him over a five-year period, I'm not going to be here in five years. So I think the money really changed everything. There's so many guys. I mean, look at look at um, even with Marino. He didn't start right away. There was a little bit of a window where he sat um, before taking over for Woodley. That you know, and, and I just feel like in today's day and age, they just can't afford to do that. And, and I think it's largely because of the money that player development. It's, a, it's such, such a win now mentality that if you don't, you know, it's just there's just not a lot of not a lot of job security. I, if it, that's what it that's what it means to me anyway. Um, well, you listen to Real Sports Guys, um, RealSportsGuys.com. I'm on with uh, Jimmy Grant, Sean Miskivens, authors of Deprived, the Lost 1982 NFL Season, and uh, we're we're talking about development. And Sean, I think you had something that you want to add to it. So go on and add something here to that conversation. I mean, you asked, how did we stay in the moment? Again, like so many times as historians, like you're posed with a question about, well, this was horrific what they did. That's, that's abysmal that that army did that to that civilian population, that incident. And you're always trained like, well, you have to look at it somewhat differently than in 2015. You have to look at it in the context of their times. 
that's a big phrase that's thrown out in history. So I think, again, having that historian thing in us, we kind of look at it in the context of their time. So in 1982, Joe Montana is not this great, epic Hall of Fame quarterback. He's a young quarterback who showed some great potential. He got to a Super Bowl and he won it. And, like, he's still trying to cement his place as a solid NFL starter. He's still trying to stick with the franchise. I mean, you can throw out some names. You can go a little bit older or you can go a little bit younger. You know, Boomer Esiason is a young guy, took a Bengals team to the Super Bowl. Tony Eason got a Patriots team there that really had no business weaving through the AFC playoffs. You know, they never get back. They never become anything, you know, in Boomer's case, he's a Pro Bowler a couple times. I'm pretty sure Eason never made more than maybe one Pro Bowl, you know. So in 82, you know, not knowing what we know now, maybe Montana is Boomer Esiason. That was it. That was his one run. He never gets it done. But, you know, obviously things break differently for Montana. Um, You know, maybe a more modern context, you know, Flacco. Maybe Flacco is currently Joe Montana in the 1982-1983 season. Yeah, he got there with that one magical run. He won it. But will he go on and do it again, or will he be a one-and-done guy? Well, that's pretty good. You know, ask Dan Fouts. Ask Dan Marino. Do you want to win one Super Bowl and never do it again? Of course they'd say yes. So, you know, it's the context of the times. You know, um, in reading the book, you can kind of even (laughs) – some of the quotes from some of the Niners guys that played on that team – they talk about how awful the roster was. You know, when even as guys that loved NFL, you know, Jimmy and I used to collect all those little bubblegum cards when we were kids. It was hard to remember, like, two 49er running backs from back then. You know, it was just like that wasn't a great roster. I mean, I guess I was never a Niners fan, but in writing the book, I was kind of like, God, I really respect Bill Walsh more. He was able to make a run with the squad. And there were so many young guys, and you know, some of them ended up being great. But to weave just kind of a few veterans that had no really reputation, these young guys, and then, I mean, I hate to use it because they were NFL players, but there were some has-beens on that team. And he got them there, and he won it in 81. I mean, it made me respect Walsh more. Yeah. It, you know, and, and I, I want to say – it's important for people to understand this. So, you know, when the 49ers were good, I mean, for for, for the, the three of us and Phil growing up, I mean, when the 49ers were good, when people were like, wow, this team is running, it was weird. It's like for today, for folks, the Jacksonville to go on a run. Like if Jacksonville went on a run, for most of folks who watch football today, Jacksonville hasn't been necessarily knocking the door down. And if they went on this epic run, we would be like, where is this coming from? And it felt weird. It didn't even look right. When the 49ers yeah. were looking good. It just because we were dominated yeah. by the Steelers, the Cowboys. It didn't look right. Yeah, you're about six years older than us. You definitely remember those doldrum late 70s Niners teams that were nothing. And then all of a sudden. Nothing. I mean, I think they were 2 and 14 in 79, and then in 81 they win the Super Bowl. Like, that, that's, a, that's a quick turnaround. I mean, but, you know, I think you both hit on something, the lack of patience. You know, I think teams were more patient. You know, Boomer had time to try and get the Bengals back. Montana, you know, by all accounts, didn't do as well in 82 as he did in 81. Teams are more patient, you know. And one thing I think in the modern NFL, and this kind of started near the end of our time at Beloit College in the mid-'90s, like 
teams started giving contracts to guys that got rolled out when somebody else got injured and had one big year, you know, Scott Mitchell and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and they got a huge contract and they never played well again. And, you know, it's even changed differently now. You know, Kevin Cobb has a couple big games for the Eagles, suffering for McNabb. He gets a big deal, you know, from Buffalo. Um you know, this sort of thing happens. Uh, who was the Packers backup? The kid from LSU, Matt um, Flynn. Uh, Matt Flynn, uh, Flynn, same thing. You know, he gets a big contract from Seattle because he goes in a few games when Rodgers is hurt. He gets beat out by a third-round draft pick from Wisconsin, Russell Wilson. And then, you know, he I think he went to the Raiders. He wasn't very good there. And now he, he was back with Green Bay, and he was decent. But, I mean, it's just people – you know, you guys hit on it. Coaches don't have the timetable they used to. You know, it's it's a byproduct of the world we live in. We used to wait by the mailbox to get a letter from someone to see how they're doing. Now if you don't text somebody back in like an hour, they're going ballistic. It's just, it's an impatient world. You don't have the time you used to. I I, I love this. It, it, the greatest thing about the book that gave it, even when you, you were addressing the what ifs, which is this? This is the twist that just cracks me up. Is the way in which you you integrated your family culture into the what ifs? Like, what gave you the idea, and how how did family members, how do folks react to the tone? And I can feel it because I was trying to reflect on my own family. But but that that was the most interesting part of the book. If you read the book, is great. You get to know their families, and the stuff was so seventy. And it, in the in eighties, it was in the in the PC wasn't there. What was that like to to kind of bring that part into into the book, uh, Jimmy? I'll go with you, and then uh, John. I mean, it, for some people, I think it, it was a little scary, like that. Just like people that know me kind of well, but don't really know my family, they were like, "Mother of God, like that was your childhood." But I thought it was hilarious. I mean, most of the stuff that my dad says is 100% accurate or it's, it's um, you know, I had to tone it down maybe a little bit. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, he's a great person. I mean, he's an old school. He was a hardworking guy and he, he had a, a hard edge to him, but he would sit there and, you know, make jokes like that and, you know, suck down beers and, you know, say that Joe Montana was a wimp and, you know, other expletives I won't repeat and you know you just kind of chuckled at it and it's it was funny to go back and think about like funny stories from our childhood and you know it just I mean I want to again you get nostalgic when you do stuff like that but it really was like a different time period like and I know like people always say that because when we get old we we become nostalgic for when we're young but you know you came home, I was telling kids in classes the other day, nobody played Atari when I was little, unless it rained, because Atari sucked. The graphics weren't great. The games weren't that great. Now, the video games are unbelievable. So you came home in our neighborhood, and you, know, you got off the bus, and if it was if it was spring, you were playing you know baseball. If it was, if it was fall, you played football, and, you know, you – you went to high school games on Friday night, on Saturday, you know, you, you watched it, college games, and suddenly you just, you played outside until the games came on, you know, in the NFL. And so um, it was very humorous for me to think back about 
you know, some of those uh, moments and, and uh, you know, laugh about, you know, stuff that, that you know, we did. And, you know, so it was, it was enjoyable. I, I just, you know, it was just a fun thing to do. The um, Devon, the the math teacher at my high school, she's a, she's an inner city girl. She grew up in Washington D.C. She's a college basketball player. You know, she's very funny, and she, you know, her quote about the Irish is, "Y'all ain't cookie cutter people." And you know, kind of paraphrase <laughs> what she means by that is, like nobody is going to bring like a family counselor to come and watch an Irish household and say. This is how you properly conduct family business. This is good for everyone's morale. This is like good, you know, mentoring of like training kids to be adults. It's a little crazy. It's a little controversial. It's loud. And but if you're watching it and you're not involved in it and you're not getting berated or, you know, told to climb up on the roof while people are throwing beer cans at you, then it's it's entertaining. But, you know, we managed to survive this and you know, we're we're the better for it. You know, we'll deal well with tough situations at a job or in life or whatever. But, you know, it was kind of a little homage to growing up Irish. Now, there's a lot more stories we could have weaved in there, but, you know, nobody's going to buy a book about our family, so we just weaved in a few humorous ones as we could. Now, I've got five brothers and sisters, and, you know, they live all over the country. And, you know, my sister in Denver, who works for the government, I guess I didn't do a good job of keeping in touch with her during this writing process. And, she didn't actually like she had known that I was talking about writing a book, but she didn't know it was actually published. And one of my other sisters called and was like, Oh, Lori Lori is running out to get this book right now and I'm like, Really? I didn't know she was that into football since she moved to Denver and they're like, Oh no, she's not. She wants to know what she wrote about our family and I'm like, Oh, so she's like worried and they're like yeah, I think she's worried that, like, you might have wrote stuff about her without her permission. And I was like, oh, no, she's not covered in the book, so it's all good. But, you know, so for the most part, you know, different family members that have read it, you know, my godmother, my brother, um, you know, they thought it was they thought it was entertaining. They liked it. They thought it was good. You know, I mean, you know, my godmother, my mom's own sister was like, I, I can't believe you guys are secretly tape recording your parents' dinner conversations and then playing it back later when they didn't know what the heck you were doing. I'm like, you know, we were we were kind of, you know, a little bit on the poverty line. We were bored. There wasn't a lot to do. You know, we talk about there was not really cable TV at the time. You know, kids had to entertain themselves more. You know, and right. a, a humorous, you know, I remember going to an Eagles game with my dad in 83, and it wasn't that cold. <laughs> and he's like, here, we're walking in the vet. He's like, hold this blanket. And I'm like nine or ten. I'm like, we don't really need a blanket. He's like, just hold the damn blanket. And you walk in, and you get up to the seats, and he's like, I'll take the blanket now. And he like unfolds it. There was like a six pack of beers in it, you know. And you just look at it and start laughing. And you're like, oh, all right. You were the bag there. man. He he yeah, was right. having you I carry mean, the bag. Right. So you know. It's, it's, I love it. How it. We're here with uh, Jimmy Grant, Seamus Gibbons, uh, authors of uh, Deprived, The Lost. 1982 NFL season. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and we're going to hear about the Grant quarterback rating system. Uh, I think you got to hear this stuff. This will be good. We'll we'll come back here in a minute. Resistance Digital Solutions. Are you tired of running to the boys in blue? Are you done with listening to sales staff trying to upsell you technology that you don't need? We've all been there. So, what did the real sports guys do? We contacted Resistance Digital Solutions for all our technology needs. 
they are not there to meet sales quotas or make profit margins. They simply just want to sell you what you need at a fair price. From iPads to PCs to flat screens, TVs, or intricate home theater systems, they customize every solution based on your needs. Check out their website at www.resistancedigital.com or email them at sales at resistancedigital.com for your custom technology solutions today. All right, this is uh, Devon Wilson. You're listening to Real Sports Guys, realsportsguys.com. We're here with the authors, uh, Jimmy Grant and Sean Mitzkivens, authors of Deprived, the Lost 1982 NFL Season. You can get the book at uh, realsportsguys.com. We have a Amazon carousel. The book is there, kind of spinning. Click on it. Buy it. It's a must-read. Uh, it's hilarious. Um, and you'll learn a lot about uh, things about the NFL that, you know, have kind of creeped up uh, here in recent years, and you'll get a sense of that kind of the connection where some of this stuff is kind of evolved to um, for some folks who might be uh, kind of joining and, and getting interested in the game in the last five to ten years, you, you'll get a sense of where some of this stuff has uh, come from and how it's evolved. But um, one of the interesting uh, things about the book, uh, and Jimmy, I'll let you uh, jump in here, is that you, you, you know, um, developed your own rating system, and you, you talk about, you know, why this is different than the current systems that people use to rate quarterbacks. Uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of time to kind of talk about this because I think um, you know, I think it's important to, to understand that people are thinking differently about some of these things, and I, I think you've really kind of thought this through. So I'll, I'll let you kind of describe it. Yeah, I, you know, a number of years back, I, I looked at the, the all-time quarterback rating system, okay? And so I started – I'll give you some, some choices here. You got all, all of us can play, okay? Um, Dante Culpepper, Dan Marino. Who you like better? I would say Which Dan one? Marino. Okay, good. Uh, Staubach or Cutler? Uh, Staubach. Unitas or Gerbach? Elvis Gerbach. I know, I know you're a Michigan guy. Ooh. Uh, everybody will say Unitas because he's great, but I like I like Gerbach. Okay. I mean, Unitas uh, statistically, but you can you, you, if you if we're just gonna follow statistics, we say Unitas. Okay. Um, John L.A. or Kyle Orton? L.A. Okay. Every single one of the guys I mentioned, Culpepper is rated higher than Marino. Cutler is rated higher than Stahlbeck. Gerbeck's rated higher than Unitas. Kyle Orton's rated higher than John Elway. I mean, I could go through the list in, 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 for eons about players that you're like, oh, my gosh, he's rated higher um, than, you know, Tony Easton's rated higher than Greasy. And I just looked at this, and I'm like, this is awful. Like, some of these guys that are rated so highly, they're not even, in my opinion, they weren't even good. Um, and so what I started doing was I started looking at, well, why are they rated higher? And the, and the rating formula, it values so many things like completion percentage and, and you know, uh, touchdown percentage and, and things of that nature. But what bothered me about it was, the way the leagues changed, it really penalizes quarterbacks who played in different eras. Because if you played prior to 78, you couldn't throw the ball away. You couldn't just roll out of the tackle box and throw it in the stand. You couldn't slide. Um, receivers could be manhandled down the field, and then you could be running through the secondary and a guy just clothesline you. You know, and so 
they're not going to even have close to those numbers. And so I started going back and thinking about, well, well what is it that we value in quarterbacks? You know, what, what do we always talk about? And to me, it's guys who won championships, you know, guys who, you know, were clutch in the fourth quarter. And so I devised this, what my own rating system where I took a lot of, I basically used the standard. I took the stats of the best quarterbacks, the best quarterback of each year. And, of course, you could argue who I took. You know, I used Unitas, 50s, Star in the 60s, Bradshaw, 70s, Montana, 80s, Aikman, 90s. I'm sorry, Aikman, 2000 um, or 90s. And then Brady, sorry, Brady currently. Well, you could substitute Peyton Manning for Brady. It really wouldn't change the numbers that much. Um, if you used Marino instead of, say, Montana Aikman. Yeah, it wouldn't change the numbers terribly. But where I, what I used was their completion percentage, yardage, the yards per completion, yards per attempt, which I think is important because nobody throws the ball down the field anymore. It's these little you know, cheesy three-yard passes, and then the guy runs for 30 yards. Whereas, you know, back in those days, you know, in the 70s and 60s, they were launching the ball. So there were going to be more interceptions. And then I used their touchdown and their interception percentage. But I gave them points for titles, fourth-quarter comebacks, and they got a bonus point if they played more of their more than half of their career before the rule changes in 78. The bump and run rule change. And then taking the average of those statistics, I now measure every quarterback against that on a seven scale, and that's how you devise the rating. And so when I come up with my top ten, it's, it's guys like Brady and Starr and Montana and Unitas and Bradshaw and, you know, guys who were were clutch when they had to be, guys who won titles, um, not guys like, you know, no offense, I think he's a nice player, but Carson Palmer, you know, or Matt, Matt Ryan's the 11th best passer of all time. Chad Pennington's 12th. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> Matt, Matt Schaub's 13. He might not even make an NFL roster. He's the 13th-rated passer in league history. I mean, he's rated higher than Marino. I mean, it's uh, Brett Favre. It, it's a scene um, that they that that's how they rate quarterbacks to me. Um, and you know, it's it's really hurt some guys, in my opinion. Um, you know, you look at a guy who recently passed, a guy like Kenny Stabler, who I think almost anybody who knows football could make an argument that. I mean, Kenny Stabler was one of the best players of the 70s. Yes. And he's still waiting for the hall, for an appearance in the Hall of Fame because if you look at his quarterback rating, he's 99th all time. I mean, hmm. John Kitten is rated higher than him. I mean, if I had two hmm. minutes left to go in, in a game and I had, you know, um, Tony Easton standing there who's also rated higher than him, or Kenny Stabler, I mean, is it even a question? I mean, I'd be like, hey, Tony Eason, go get Snake a Gatorade before he goes out there. You know, I mean, I hate to say that, but, you know, so I just think what we tried to look at was, you know, or what I tried to look at is 
what what do you do in the moment, you know, when, when it's all out there, you know? Um, and so that's where I think my formula is different. And the one thing I liked about it was I got some nice feedback from two people. Um, Ray Didinger, who's a huge guy on the NFL network. Um, he's a big NFL historian. Um, I sent him the formula and I got a really um, nice response about how much he liked it and where he thought that, that you, it's really hard to compare quarterbacks across eras, but this might be a format to do that was the gist of what he said. He also was real happy with star. He thought star was underrated because people said, Oh, it was Lombardi and you know, those guys that won and, and, you know, um, and then, John McLean from the Houston Chronicle. I was in correspondence with him over the summer. He's trying to make a push to get Ken Stabler in the Hall of Fame, and he wanted to use my formula to talk about where Stabler rates in relation to some of these other Hall of Fame quarterbacks because he's close. He's close. And so, you know, he thought that that might be something. He's a voter for the Hall of Fame that, that he might be able to bring to the table to try to help his cause. So so that those were two things that I thought were were you know kind of neat about it that that some people seem to think that it has some value at least as an alternate to the other one you know or a comparison. Well, that's it's some good stuff. And the reason why I went to I'm gonna let folks know you need to go and check this book out. You know you can learn more about this rating system. You can learn more about the stories that they share about the 1982 season, uh, about their families. There's some great stuff that have you chuckling. Uh, gentlemen, uh, I want to thank you for spending time with me uh, tonight. Um, uh, their book uh, is uh, titled uh, Deprived the Lost 1982 NFL Season. You can uh, get it at uh, uh, on our realsportsguys.com at the website uh, with the Amazon uh, carousel. You click on the book, purchase it. You got to read it. Uh, gentlemen, where can people find you if they want to follow up with you? Um, we have a family Facebook page. Um, they can find me on Facebook under my wife's name, Natalie Miskimmons, so they can hit us up on Facebook through Natalie Miskimmons, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, and then the last name I know for those listening, you're probably like, what did that guy say his name was? M-I-S-K-I-M-I-N-S, Natalie Miskimmons. All right. And, and Jimmy? If, they, if they have a um a question for me about the book, uh, my email is grant2292 at live.com. I'll be happy to answer any questions about the book, um, you know, the, the rating system. I don't pretend to say that it's, it's better than other rating systems, but I think it's a good alternative, like I said. Well, well, gentlemen, I know uh, Coach George is proud. I call him Baby Schimbackler. And I, it was great to have an Ali Haji Sheik <laughs> mentioned in there uh, as well. Is that a uh, Michigan guy? That's a Michigan guy. I remember watching when he came. I was like, yeah, he's a Michigan guy. You know, kick those figures up. We loved him uh, back then. Now, you know, we had King Carter back there with with uh, with uh, with uh, with him, and it was it was a great time in Ann Arbor when he was there. So um, loved him back there. There's some great names that y'all just had me chuckling about. Um, and just uh, that just brought me to to tears um, back in those you know those uh, 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 
We Are Family days in, in, in Michigan. Um, and as a Steeler fan, I, I loved uh, the way y'all talked about my Steelers. So y'all keep doing it. I hope that y'all find time to do another book. You know, I think, you know, the first time around you learned a lot. Hopefully um, this will inspire you to, to share. And I, I love y'all approach to it. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, you find the energy to, to try and take another run at it. Uh, thank you again for being here tonight, guys, and uh, oh, uh, we'll get you us. back on soon. No Thank, problem. Thanks for All having right. us on the Resistance Digital Solutions. Are you tired of running to the boys in blue? Are you done with listening to sales staff trying to upsell you technology that you don't need? We've all been there. So, what did the real sports guys do? We contacted Resistance Digital Solutions for all our technology needs. They are not there to meet sales quotas or make profit margins. They simply just want to sell you what you need at a fair price. From iPads to PCs to flat screens, TVs, or intricate home theater systems, they customize every solution based on your needs. Check out their website at www.resistancedigital.com or email them at sales at resistancedigital.com for your custom technology solutions today. You're listening to The Real Sports Guys. RealSportsGuys.com, brought to you by Resistance Digital Solutions. LL Cool J is hard as hell. Battle anybody, I don't care. You fail. I expel. They all fail. Gonna go sell double all my You're listening to The Real Sports Guys, realsportsguys.com, brought to you by Resistance Digital Solutions. You're listening to the Real Sports Guys, RealSportsGuys.com, brought to you by if my, if my, if my wife and I had grabbed Well, this is good. It was uh, 
a great interview with Jimmy Grant and Sean Miskivens, authors of Deprived, the Lost 1982 NFL Season. Um, it was just good to have them uh, in the building. They did a really good job. You know, Phil, I'm going to give you a little chance. You had to kind of sit on the sidelines and just reflect and listen. I uh, wanted to just kind of hear some of your thoughts. I thought it was uh, it was really interesting how they came up with the idea for the book. Um, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, or I haven't read it yet, I should say. But uh, it was really, really interesting because when they opened up the interview and they mentioned, hey, a lot of people remember the 87 strike, but the 82 strike doesn't get as much pub. And you're right. I remember that 87 strike. I remember the scabs and people crossing over and, uh, I do remember all that, so I'll be really interested to uh, to read the book. And it also was just it was interesting to hear the chemistry that Jimmy and Sean had um, in terms of just from the interview. Um, so I'm assuming that that probably came out through the book as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can you know they're great storytellers and. Um, you know the the family aspect of how they brought that into it to to provide a context was a uh, interesting angle uh to it and um you know the the rating system that uh that Jimmy developed I, I think um really I think as he talked about placed value where I don't think folks have kind of placed uh value that they kind of you know you can contextualize what somebody's done um and just not have it about you know um the stats that um, all of it has a context to it, um, and trying to capture the context, um, I think, has really elevated, you know, some of the quarterbacks that, you know, I think most people would place some some value in. You know, when you think about what they talked about, you know, how would you, I mean, you think about some of the labor stuff today, some of the Brady stuff, and just the kind of ongoing contention that was obvious part of that 57-day strike. How do you see, do you, do you see some of that stuff continuing? And and, and and how do you view that as, you know, in terms of the future of the NFL? Because I see some of those similar things still being issues, but it's just um, the scale is different today because of the money. Uh, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so I believe the strike that we just went through, um, man, 2012, maybe 2013, that was a lot different than the strikes back in 87 and 82 because – as fans, we, you know, based on the seven ESPN channels and the 55 regional sports channels, um, we felt a lot more connected. You know, we learned about things closer to real time where 25, 30 years ago, things were much, much different in terms of how we got our information. Um, so I think also the players had a lot more leverage now because players – um, had more informal platforms to speak out on things mm -hmm. like Twitter um, and also mm -hmm. the Internet where those weren't resources that they had 25 or 30 years ago. I think the other big difference between the strike we just had um, and the 82 and 87 strike is that football was not the giant that it is now. It was mm -hmm. certainly one of the big sports in the country, um, but I think it was behind baseball that time or pretty close. And also, um, the sports, uh, the, the NFL wasn't as um, advertising and non-football fan friendly as it is now. 
uh, back mm-hmm. then, where back then you pretty much had hardcore fans and a smaller uh, percentage of the population who were not hardcore fans followed football. Now, um, I would argue that the non-football hardcore fans probably outnumber um, the, the football, quote-unquote, purists, uh, because football has such more of an entertainment value. You have uh, more legal, legalized gambling. Um, you have fantasy football. You have all these different broad things that have brought people um, to watch football where maybe they didn't grow up with football or they didn't play football growing up. Um, so, so those are some dynamics that I think that are different. So to me that that adds value to what Jimmy and Sean did with this book because there's probably a lot of stories and a lot of things uh, from the interviews they were able to pull in that maybe never saw the light of day in terms of through the national media. Yeah, and um, you know, and it's and it's funny, like even going back and um, you know, uh in their book talking about um you know, people like Joe Montana before they were great, you know, when they were in a process that, you know, people yeah. didn't didn't quite um know that they were gonna become that person. Um and, you know, I almost feel like that with someone like a Russell Wilson where he's having some success but he's living that kind of uh, kind of criticism. People aren't sure um, whether or not he is that person. And you see some of that today, where you, you know, you know, maybe ten years from now, uh, folks might be like, what, "What were we thinking about?" Uh, but it's hard for people who kind of you know see this the commercials of Joe and some of these people now to know that there was some period of uncertainty. Um, and, and and the idea of the 49er franchise, you know, when I said, you know, you know, the Jacksonville thing, it, it was it, it was true. I mean, when people were talking about the 49ers, I remember people were like, oh, the 49ers, I was like, what are you talking about? You know, because not everybody had access to TV like they do or information now, like you kind of pointed out. And, you know, I had to kind of make some special arrangements to kind of see some of these games. And when they were I was like, the 49ers, I mean, it was just like, it was like if someone was saying Jacksonville's on the rise. I mean, we you, you'd be like, are you crazy? You know, or or the Jets? You know, uh, you know, going on a four, you know, Super Bowl run. You'd be like, these folks are crazy. Uh, that whole notion of it is hard for people to to kind of uh, understand in this kind of role of development. And I love the way they answer this, the question of how hard it is today, but it doesn't mean that it's not necessary. You know, um, and I guess only the coaches and organizations that have security can actually do it, you know, so Seattle can do that, you know, maybe, or other organizations, but the idea of needing to let somebody develop is still a necessary thing, um, as I was saying earlier to, to, to RG3, and so, you know, that was kind of an interesting part about it when you start to compare, you know, that era to this era and what produced greatness, and even people like Plunkett and, and Anderson who had this resurgence late in their career, I was like, can that, ha-? I was like, can that happen today? Can that, you know, um, you know, can you have a Kenny Anderson or a Plunkett today? I mean, could that, uh, you know, like who would be the Kenny Anderson or Plunkett today? I, I, you know, I couldn't even think of it. Yeah. You know, and so uh, that's a, that's amazing. Well, Hey, uh, check them out. Uh, they're on the, the real sports guys.com uh, website. Uh, we have an Amazon uh, uh, dot com uh, carousel. Their book is kind of spinning around there. Click on it. 
It's called Deprived, the Lost 1982 NFL Season. Um, uh, really, really loving it. I, I want to hit you up, and we, we kind of talked about this um, a little bit off air and then kind of hit into it a little bit. Um, I, I hit into it with my little rant. This RG3 thing, man, I'm trying to understand it. To criticize Daniel Snyder, but I thought about it on my way home. This isn't a Daniel Snyder issue. This is the football operations people. This is like, you know, just kind of listening to Jimmy and Sean, I'm kind of back in this. This is the football operations people, you know, messing up. Yeah, you know, he got some ownership in this, but where do you go if you if you that organization, man? When you see that situation, what are you thinking about? Like, what? What what do you what do you what do you deduce from that? Well, you know, we were kind of talking about this offline, and my perspective is slightly different. I feel that sometimes things just blow up; they just go bad, and it's it's not necessarily somebody's fault. So, if you looked at RG three after his first season, everything looked great. Okay. They went to the playoffs. I believe they lost in the first round, but they, they made the playoffs with a rookie quarterback. They won 10 games or, like, at least 10 games. And RG3 was looking like a rising star. He made the Pro Bowl. And the, the Redskins looked very justified picking up, like, making all these moves to get that pick from St. Louis. It made sense that they mortgaged away their future to get a guy like this. I remember even listening to um, Sports Talk Radio at the time. I forget what show it was, but they had polled all 32 G- or 31 other GMs and and had asked, you know, hey, would you have given, like knowing what you know now, RG3 had this great year, would you have mortgaged your future like the Redskins did, um, knowing that, you would be getting a player like RG3. And in that poll, it was something like 90% of the GMs that responded said yes. So to me, we have to keep things in perspective. How often do you have a Pro Bowl quarterback in his first year all of a sudden just dud out like RG3 has? It doesn't Mm. happen often. You know, no. there may be a listener out there that can pull one or two examples out, but out of the, you know, that's that's not many. So, in my opinion, that means that it doesn't happen often, and sometimes things go bad, and that's what happened with RG3. And I don't necessarily think there's anybody to blame. It just went bad. And you, you, when you look at that that class, I mean, you got RG3 Blackman. Um and uh, Trent Richardson, which I I, I don't even I don't even understand. That. I mean, and I said at the time I was like, you know, something about these Alabama running backs. Uh, Lacey's kind of proved me wrong, but I think I was kind of critical at the time. We go back and check the tape, uh, but I didn't think it was going to be this hard of a fall. And that class, when you start putting it in context, I mean, other than you know luck, and then uh, I think with the the offensive lineman uh, that they had uh, that that was drafted there. You know, they. I, I don't know. You have to me a top five draft that kind of have that kind of result. Um, so he's not the only one in that draft that you know top five group that's that's struggling. There must have been something in the water. You know, maybe something they had that night that just is turning things off. But it, it's it, it's it's crazy. Um, you know, 
we didn't get into this. As you prepare for the NFL season, I know we did our projections, but a lot has happened up until this point. You know, as you get ready, and we'll probably get into it here in our, our next podcast, you know, either before or after the, the opening week, you know, what are some of the storylines or what have you been getting excited about as the league is starting that um, from your own observations? Well, I'm curious to see what happens in Seattle. There's been a mm-hmm. – um, the last two seasons, things have been pretty calm for them. And now with everything that's going on with Russell Wilson, with his contract, and, you know, my man's talking about there's uh, there's this water that cured his concussion, and he's also an owner with this. And yeah. there, there's a lot of extra noise. Um that's coming from that camp. So I'm curious to see how the team responds. Um, also, um, there's a handful of players who have been plagued by injury over the last few years, and I'm curious to know if they are over the hill or if it was just a blip. And so one example is Calvin Johnson, Megatron. Mm-hmm. You know, doing getting ready for fantasy football drafts, and half of the folks, the pundits, that are putting together the primers are pretty much saying that he's done. But then there's another half that's saying, yes, he's still a top, the top wide receiver out there. So to me, he's a big gamble right now from a fantasy football perspective, but just from an overall football perspective for the guy. He's a Detroit Lion, um, our hometown team, our home state team as well as he just seems like a decent guy. And I'm really looking forward to see if Detroit can make the move forward, but it really hinges on his health. Yeah, I, I'm, um, you know, with the announcement of uh, Tyrod Taylor, I, I had a chance to watch him at Virginia, oh, yeah. uh, Virginia Tech. Um, and I just think he, you know, he's got a, a swag about him. Um, and I think uh, Buffalo's a right. You know, I still like, Again, E.J. Manuel, I liked him coming out of college. I felt like in the right situation he could grow. But, again, I think, like you said, sometimes it's just being matched with the right thing. But I think given what Rex wants to do and his leadership skills, it's going to be interesting to see how he fits and what he gives them in terms of the athleticism. Um, and he, he just has, like, this, this kind of quiet confidence uh, that I like uh, about him. Um, uh, my Steelers, you know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm a Tomlin fan. But I, he he he's got his Super Bowl, but you know I think that he's almost in one of those 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 that space where they need to start making another run, and um, you know they've had some some incidents and some you know some suspensions and some injuries and some things, and I, I really feel like offensively they're where they, they need to be, and they got some young defensive players, and that's a tough division. Um, uh, but I, I picked them. Uh, to to come out of it because I just I think that Ben is ready. He got the weapons around him to, to lead, and that them youngins will get better defensively as they as they go. Um, and then you know um, uh, you know thinking about you know some of the you know people that are kind of under the radar. You know um, San Diego made a really good run last year, um, and uh, they kind of uh, solidified the running back position this year and. Um, you know, everybody's talking about Denver, but they, they kind of got that solid team and, um, you know, uh, got Rivers under contract, um, kind of seeing what's going to happen over, uh, out there and how that might how might that might that shape um, the run in the AFC. Um, 
and, and that's something that uh, that 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 I'm I'm real interested uh, in 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 seeing. Um, and then the whole NFC East is like a it's just like a whole bunch of soap opera stuff happening there, and I don't know where to go with it. It's just you got Philly, you know, you got this stuff in Washington. And then the Giants are just kind of sitting there quietly. Not really a lot of stuff coming out of there. They got a, they had a couple things early on, but you know they're kind of settling in to it. And then Dallas is right there. Uh, but that is just a that, that's just a mess. And then something's got to happen. And so I think there's a lot of interesting storylines uh, in there. And with all this mess, nobody's talking about Jay Cutler in Chicago. It's like he's the quiet yeah. one, you know. That nobody he was the person everybody's talking about. He kind of just been behind the scenes a, a little bit. Um, and uh, maybe that's good for him, but um, something's got to give in Chicago. You know, he's either got to step up or step out um, uh, with that. So, you know, we're getting ready for the season, and then college football season starting. And I know we didn't talk about our uh, – and, and I think, you know, unlike others, we might wait for the season to get warmed up a little bit. Uh, but I'm excited about this kind of Wisconsin-Alabama uh, lineup. We got Michigan against Utah this weekend. Uh, we got some good football. That college football coming together. Game day is going to be coming out a little bit, so I'm, I'm excited for the the beginning uh, uh, of that season. Uh, do you do you have a you have a uh, 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 are you have you have you lined up your college football stuff? Or are you still in the lab thinking about it? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still in the lab with you know. I am not really prepared right now with college football. Yeah. I all I know is Ohio State. Being in Ohio, Ohio State, it has been insufferable. Uh, the fans, because yeah. they are the first team to ever be unanimously the top team in the AP poll. Um, and even fancy football, man, I'm so far behind. I have a couple of drafts this coming weekend, so it may just Still be boot team, camp. Man. You you missed the preparation. What's going on, man? You always ready for the draft. Like you, you, you've already run your analysis. You got your board up in the house. What, what's going on, man? Well, I that tell you PhD what, um, <laughs> that may be it. But also, part of it is intentional because last year, I I did at least ten mock drafts. Okay. Mm. I started a month before the season, maybe six six, six weeks before the season. And in the league, that means the most to me, which is uh, uh, Eric Hamilton's league, the guru from the fantasy guru from Zoo, I did not make the playoffs. Oh my and god! And that's the first time I believe in that league I have not made the playoffs. And so what happens is, if you don't make the playoffs in his league, you you have to go to the JV division the next year. <laughs> With with everybody else who did not make the playoffs, with the six guys that did not make the playoffs, so um, it's embarrassing, man. So like my approach has been different this year, where it's like I'm only going to do one mock draft, maybe the day of or the day before the draft, because I feel like last season I was too prepared and I was like I just outsmarted myself. <laughs> so you just I just gonna and I was gonna let the music because you you were on a roll. You know, I'm just gonna let it play out. You know, let you close this thing out. You know, I'm gonna go to the corner because because it, it felt like you were in a therapy session. So I thought I'd just put a little music oh, back man. there. That you had a last word on this one because you know, like, you know, they used to do it easy. I'm gonna let you have the last word on this. 
Because it seems like you just got to get something off your chest. Well, like I mentioned, I'm in the JV division this year, and um, it's embarrassing. It is very, very embarrassing. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing, but I'm just going to put my head down and get it done, period. And, and everybody else out there listening, if you had a bad fancy football season, just know that it doesn't mean that you are incompetent. It doesn't mean that you didn't, like, you aren't smart. It just means that you had a bad season. So don't let it be a bad two seasons. That's all I got. And, and I'll say, as a person who started out, oh, my first commissioner role, and I was sitting in I, I, my team, my draft went crazy because I was trying to focus on being a commissioner. I think I went, like, 0-5, close wins, high scoring, and then it made a run for the playoffs. I understand, and this year I'm like, I gotta make, I gotta bounce back. So you're right. Don't yep. don't take it too bad. Just get better. Yep. Get better. But remember, you are what your record says you are. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, this is a real sports guys, y'all. Uh, thank you, Jimmy and Sean, for being with us. We'll see you next time. Peace. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.